Savage Land. It's a great, wonderful day here. We've got a special guest, special people, special times. It's all special. Uh, <laughs> today we're uh, we're going to be interviewing another creator two weeks in a row now. Um, no no gaps in between, no catch up episodes. But uh, we'll we'll go ahead and introduce him after uh, we introduce ourselves. My name is Jason. I am Matt. I am Rachel. And today in the Savage Land, we've got uh, Mr. Jim Zub, somebody who you know from probably a lot of things. If you say you haven't read a Jim Zub comic, I'm going to call you a liar. Uh, his work is, is varied and, and has uh, spread across many different uh, franchises and creator-owned stuff from Samurai Jack and Dungeons and & Dragons to Glitter Bomb and Thunderbolts and Skull Kickers. It's all over the shelves. I, I'm pretty sure you probably already own one of his comics, but welcome to the Savage Land, Mr. Jim Zub. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Thanks for joining us. Um, so we kind of, one thing we like to do is just sort of get like a, a, a sort of view of, you know, uh, each creator's kind of road leading to comics. And so I guess the, the first question I wanted to ask is, what's the first comic you remember reading? Um, I mean, I'm sure I grew up on like Spidey super stories and like stuff like that, like the, what was called the, uh, electric company back in the day, you know, like in whatever, reading Garfield in the newspaper. But the first book I remember actively like collecting was probably, uh, the GI Joe comic that Marvel put out in the early eighties. Oh, wow. Nice. Uh, yeah, that, yeah, that was the first one I recall collecting and really getting into and just enjoying thoroughly. Um, so that was kind of my jam. And then from there, that really got me into the rest of the Marvel Universe. Spider-Man being probably my biggest, you know, I collected that like crazy when I was a kid. As many different Spidey comics, but a lot of uh, Amazing Spider-Man, obviously, as a focal point. Nice. So, and so the- yeah, it was that, that. And then my brother and I got obsessed with, um, you know, the official handbook of the Marvel Universe. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. So it's like I, it was like our Pokemon in that sense of it, it codifying um, how, how the Marvel universe worked and how all the, you know, which character was tougher than the other one or whatever, all that stuff. We were so obsessed with that. I think we're just that perfect age where you can memorize things. You just like, Oh, well, this guy's first appearance was this and he's tougher than that guy. And that was just like, (laughs) you're at that age where it's just, that's pure, I don't know, just like pure crack for a kid at a certain age. I don't know why it is. I think, I think that collectability, organization you know but not you know your schoolwork god forbid it had to be something nerdy <laughs> yeah that's what you really loved you know no absolutely so we used to get we used to get those uh those uh tops put out those comic book cards and they had all the yeah, yeah oh man and that was the same thing for me just like get a billion of those things collect them all memorize them all yeah i think there's something something really fun about that at that age where you're like i know something about this very particular thing and i'm obsessed with it and i can tell you all about it and your parents eyes just roll into the back of their heads <laughs> exactly yeah. couldn't he be into sports or something no forget nope. it but it's uh it's fine like i you know we love that stuff we were really crazy about it couldn't get enough yeah. um and so I just we collected the Marvel Universe. My brother and I, you know, between our allowance and everything else, we would try and get as many of those books uh, that we could. So I was collecting all the Spider-Man titles. So at one point, that was three Spider-Man books. So it's like Spectacular Spider-Man, Web of Spider-Man, and Amazing. Mm-hmm. 
And then uh, my brother and I would occasionally buy the Avengers and we get Doctor Strange and Thor and Hulk and just as much stuff as we get our hands on. Uh, and when Secret Wars 2 came out, uh, we couldn't get enough of it. We were just like collecting all the tie-in issues. And I don't know, it was just that perfect age to get totally obsessed with Marvel. Yeah. So, so yeah, you, that was really my go-to in comics. And then the weirdest thing is, I really kind of transitioned out into other stuff. Like, we were, um, we we essentially, uh, my brother went off to university, and he got hooked on manga. And this is the very sort of earliest sort of manga uh, that was published in North America, like the original translations of Akira that Epic put out. Oh yeah, and some. Of the earliest viz books and and stuff like that like ran the half and uh you know um studio proteus was doing apple seed and and uh books like that so we got pretty into to manga very the the earliest kind of north american fandom mm. of manga and then uh from there when i was in college kind of the web comic thing took off where people were starting to make web comics as the internet was coming into its own so i've sort of transitioned through all these different kinds of comic fandoms uh at just kind of the right time and sort of moved through a bunch of them and they've all influenced me in different ways so it's been great that's awesome uh yeah. so, so in terms of like manga and american comics what's you know sort of like going through the years and stuff what do you view as the yeah. kind of integral difference between the storytelling in american comics versus manga well for me what amazed me when i first started reading manga translations and when i first started watching anime was just the the sheer variety so genre wise you know some of my favorite comics early on were like romantic comedies or like weird kooky historical comics or strange you know genres that you know stuff beyond superheroes mm -hmm. like i know that there were north american comics that were doing other genres yeah. but for some reason they were kind of off my radar it wasn't until i started reading manga that i really noticed that stuff where i saw oh you can do great comics that are just little slice of life stories you can do great comics that are you know romance or or comedy even you know because that wasn't something that was as as big a thing for me with north american books it was just pure kind of superheroes or fantasy like i liked conan and stuff and i liked the marvel superheroes and that was pretty much my jam you know occasionally like the original teenage mutant ninja turtles i read the black and white ones but that's like that was kind of it but then with manga, it just felt like this huge open, you know, everything was up for grabs. Like it felt like you couldn't get enough, you know, variety into them. It was so cool. I loved it. Uh, uh, yeah, it was yeah. just amazing to me. And so that that to me, I think the the depth and breadth of what was there and the, because of the type of storytelling they would have. I know now there's a lot more decompressed storytelling in uh, North American comics and in superheroes, but at the time it didn't feel like there was. Yeah. So they would have these real, you know, what, what Scott McCloud would call moment to moment transitions or, you know, really sort of special stuff like that, that I hadn't seen as much of in North American comics. They would really play off of that variety in cool ways. That's awesome. And so, I, I know you mentioned just barely Scott McCloud, so it kind of actually brought up a, a question that I wanted to ask. What was your, like, sort of, I guess, education or training in, in writing? Like, how did you go about learning how to write? Well, that was not, uh, my intent was not to get into comics per se. It was definitely not the plan. It just sort of happened. Um, what happened was I was uh, I was working at an animation studio. That's my actual background is, is animation. Yeah. You were and working so, at Udon, right? Well, this is before Udon. Oh, before, uh, okay. 
so this is just uh i was working at an animation studio um out in calgary alberta just sort of midwest uh canada and i had been reading a bunch of web comics and i had sort of in the back of my mind been like oh it'd be fun to do a comic of my own someday but i had no understanding of how to do that like i didn't know how to get things published i didn't understand sort of publishing like as far as i could tell in order to work in comics, you either had to live in New York City or be a brilliant British person or, you know, like <laughs> I, I didn't understand like how this stuff really functioned. It just seemed so sort of, you know, it, it just I had no real frame of reference for it. Yeah. So um, to me, it was like that was sort of the thing. But but my day job was not uh, as fulfilling as I had kind of hoped. Like the working in an animation studio is real you're a cog in a machine, you know, unless you're on a really special project. And I didn't have enough experience to be in that sort of enviable position. So um, I started working on my own kind of comic story and I, I didn't know how to get something printed or published, but I knew how to, um, I knew how to set up a basic website. I could do basic HTML and stuff like that. So I thought, okay, I'll yeah. just put this thing online. And that was really my, my uh, kind of dirty down, dirty, uh, you know, learning about comics was making comics without any formal sort of training in that sense. I mean, I knew how to, I was, I had done storyboards for, for animation. Yeah. Uh, um, so I knew, you know, storytelling stuff, but this was totally different. You know, this was like, uh, you know, comic storytelling is it, there's, there's elements of animation, but it's also its own kind of art form as well. That's cool. Um, so I started doing a web comic. I would do three pages a week, and I was telling this kind of dramatic story and and learning how the comic sort of medium worked. And and uh, I, I it's funny you mentioned Scott McCloud, and I mentioned Scott McCloud. <laughs> Scott ended up reaching out to me about oh. the web comic I was doing. So at the time, a lot of people were doing the web comics that were doing well were kind of like newspaper style humor strips. Yeah. They like were dirty, XKCD but they were and, and all that. Stuff. Yeah, yeah, so, stuff like that. And I was doing like a dramatic story. It was this thing called the Makeshift Miracle, and it was kind of manga influenced in that sense that it was, um, it it had some of those notes of like you know wistful romance and and kind of mystery, and it was very much not superhero or action oriented in any sort of way, mm. and uh, and it wasn't a comedy thing like a gag a day you know garfield with nerds sort of thing like you were seeing with a lot of the other webcomic stuff yeah so scott um reached out to me and just said oh i really like what you're doing i i had posted on my website it's such a different time thinking about (laughs) because if people didn't bookmark your site they wouldn't um people wouldn't come back like getting your people to bookmark and follow you it's not like there weren't even rss feeds and stuff back then yeah so it was like people weren't actively uh following you and and telling you know checking your site you could just lose traffic so if you didn't update on time people you know you were terrified that people weren't going to keep uh keep reading essentially so i posted i was taking a break for christmas and i posted like a little blog post on they didn't even call them blogs back then i posted (laughs) a little news post on my front page and said i swear i'm coming back in the year just give me a couple weeks for christmas uh i know it's not always great but i'm doing the best i can like it was classic like Oh, woe is me kind of, yeah. uh, artist. I don't know what the hell I'm doing. And <laughs> Scott actually wrote me an email and said, the strip's fine. Everyone likes it. Don't be so hard on yourself. And I was just like, Oh my God, Scott McCloud email. <laughs> I can't believe this happened. What is going on? Yeah, that's incredible. So, um, I was like, Oh, thank you, Mr. McCloud. You know, I'm so glad you like it and whatever. And he said, Oh, here's my phone number. You should give me a call. What? 
this is a different time of the internet. Man. This is like I, you know, I say this, and everyone's like, "How does this happen?" But uh, at the time, you know, the internet there was only a handful of people doing comics and stuff, uh, so there was like a weird kind of camaraderie. Uh, so he just reached out, and we started talking. Um, and he was like, "You know, I think you're doing something a little different than what other people are doing online, and you've got a bit more of an art background. And a lot of these other guys are just sort of coming from cartooning or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, keep doing it. You should come to." Um, you should come to San Diego Comic-Con. <laughs> and I was like, oh, yeah, I would love to. But that's never going to happen. Yeah. And he was like, why not? And I said, I can't. I can't do that. I, you know, I don't have anywhere to stay and I can't afford a flight and I don't know how to get a badge. And he's like, well, I can get you a badge. That's no problem. <laughs> and I was just like, what? And again, this is a different time. You got to yeah. keep in mind that literally Scott McCloud could like make a phone call and I could get my professional um, whatever you call it, registration yeah. just based on his and that was good enough um wow and then i was like okay well where am i gonna crash and he said well you know there's some friends in california he put me in touch with some people and then i had a floor to crash on and then i just needed a a plane ticket which i still didn't have the money for yeah and i told my brother all about this my brother's like this is crazy you've got to do this i'm like i can't do this this isn't gonna happen and then he told my dad and uh Oh, I'm gonna get all verklempt here. My dad uh, uh, bought me a plane ticket. Wow! Uh, he was sort of like, "This is, you know, maybe a once in a lifetime opportunity, and you should do this thing because I know you're passionate about it." We don't understand it, yeah. but you're passionate about this. You should go forth and do this. So I went to San Diego Comic Con, not having met any of these people in person, and uh, had a wonderful time, inspired and crazy, and and got to meet a lot of other comic creators in person, and and kind of show my work and get inspired. And, and, uh, I left there like, okay, I really want to do this. I really want to be a part of this industry. Yeah. Uh, Um, and yeah, just incredible. And I've literally gone to San Diego every year since then. So last year was my 16th once in a lifetime, San Diego. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. Which I, I try not to take for granted. Trust me. (laughs) How, Uh, how old are you at this point? How, how how old am I when this is all happening? Yeah, when this is all happening, yeah. I'm talking like right now, old crusty Jim now. Uh, <laughs> no, we won't, we no, won't make this, you give away your age. Yeah, it's okay. So at the time, when, well, I get, you're going to find it out if you do a little bit of math. That's anyways. true, yeah. <laughs> uh, so this is 2002, uh-huh. 2017 now. So I'm 25 at wow. the time. That's pretty crazy. So, Twenty five years old, and you're getting you know flying out to San Diego Comic Con by yeah, Scott yeah, McCloud. Yeah, it's pretty bonkers. Uh, yeah, it was incredible. Uh, just an amazing opportunity, and and to meet so many people. And but again, the the web comic thing was like there was only a handful of people doing it. Like you could just walk up to Tycho and Gabe from Penny Arcade and just be like, "Hey, that's cool. You guys seem nice." <laughs> that's you know, and and all that Scott Kurtz on PVP and all that sort of stuff. It was just it was a different, you know, smaller kind of. Um, little crew of people making making books and so i did that for a couple years making my webcomic and i finished up the story which i think was also unusual because a lot of people were just sort of you know making these like i said newspaper style strips that never ended yeah um and then i went back to toronto uh and i worked for a while well i I ended up moving around the country i moved to halifax for a couple years working in animation and then eventually i moved back to toronto and my original intent was to um go back to school for 3d animation because the whole industry had sort of changed, and now uh, computers were were the thing. Yeah. Uh, whereas when I started, 2D was still kind of not dominant, but it was still very much a force. Um, and instead, I got a summer job at the Udon Studio that turned into nine years 
of working at the Udon wow. studio. So this, my buddy recommended me for the position, this guy, Omar Dogan, who's, uh, I've known since college yeah. and he's a good, and he, um, uh, recommended me for a position at the Udon studio. And I started as a colorist and then I went on into illustration and, um, eventually became an art director and a project manager at the studio. Wow. So I was setting up a whole kind of division and that was an amazing opportunity. I got to learn kind of the industry of publishing and all the under the hood stuff that no one would ever teach you in school, like how to, how to manage a project, how to manage artists, how to read a contract, how to, you know, work with clients, all these different sort of soft skills essentially yeah. that were really, really crucial to being in the business and working and, and getting stuff done essentially. So, um, <clears throat> that prepped me in ways I had never planned, uh, that when I eventually would go back to doing my own creator own stuff again, I knew how to get stuff done. I knew how to finish a project and, and, uh, you know, get stuff on the schedule and do pre-press and all this other stuff that I think a lot of people it, would find very useful if they were in the business, you know, yeah, absolutely. uh, that they don't have courses on these crash courses <laughs> in business and, and things like that. So I've got this really nice wide kind of range of skills, whether it's creative artistic skills and uh business sort of background. Yeah. Um, I'm rambling like crazy. No, here. dude, uh, we, we, we love it, man. I mean, it's, it's, it's okay, content. Cool. Yeah. It's always so weird. Cause people are like, how'd you get into it? Well, here's, you got 20 minutes. <laughs> um, but that is really how it ended up going. This really weird sort of, uh, circular path. But what I was missing while I was at the Udon studio was doing the business was, was sorry, was doing the art was telling stories. Oh yeah. And, um, so after a few years of doing the business stuff, I was like, okay, I got to get back to telling stories. This is, I'm losing my mind. Um, and when an opportunity came up to do a short story for one of the image anthologies called mm -hmm. pop gun, yep. uh, a friend of mine named Chris Stevens and I did a short story with, uh, what would eventually be called skull kickers. That's awesome. And that kind of changed everything in the sense that, I had been known as an art director. I'd been known as a bit of an artist and, and, you know, a manager, but people had never really thought of me like a storyteller, at least in that end of the business. I mean, you know, there was a web comic, but that had been many years ago. Yeah. And so, uh, this was a way for me to really prove to people, Hey, I can tell a, a story. I can do this stuff and I'm funny and entertaining and I've got a story to tell. And that ended up becoming a thing. So, uh, I got known for, the writing on skull kickers and it really paid off um in that way and and that's when people start to you know come to me and ask me to do writing for them so i would do the pathfinder comic for dynamite mm -hmm. i would do um writing on the street fighter miniseries stuff for udon um and then just slowly but surely getting more and more opportunities i would do some work over at dc and then that led to, you know, more stuff over at IDW and just sort of slowly kind of moving up that ladder, trying out different things and getting different opportunities. And one of the advantages of having worked in editorial and art directing was that I knew what clients looked for. Yeah. And so I know what I would want if I was an editor because I, you know, had edited on multiple books at Udon. Uh, and I knew what, you know, I expected a writer to do or, and, you know, what kind of reference material would be most helpful. Mm -hmm. And so when you, you know, any kind of freelance creative position, you want to make someone's life easier. You want to make someone's job easier. I mean, you could say that about any job. Yeah. If you're someone who makes someone's job easier, you're going to get more work, you know? 
And so, uh, you know, I, I feel like as a writer, because I've got that art background, because I've got that management background, I'm good at staying organized. I'm good at gathering reference that people need and doing what they, uh, yeah, kind of hit, hitting my marks for lack of a better term. Yeah, yeah. sure. So I know, I know it sounds weird. It's like a, a weird skill set to sort of say, hey, I'm, I'm good at being organized, but <laughs> be surprised how useful that is in an industry where things are chaotic and people aren't always delivering on time. It is. I've like just, I mean, I guess, I guess just like a, a tiny little tangent. Like I have, I'm, I'm working on my first comic with an artist right now. And that's like the first thing that I started figuring out is like, oh, it's really helpful if I include a reference page on this script that I'm sending him. And it's really helpful if I like tell him exactly what I mean for all these random movie yeah, references yeah. I'm throwing in. Working in animation, you've got to be really organized because everyone's there's so many moving parts to all these uh, productions, and so that's one of those things where if you can be, uh, you know, a team player and understand the rest of the pipeline that you're a part of, yeah, you're going to be so much more useful to the pipeline as a whole because you are the kind of person who can deliver. You're the kind of person that can, you know, uh, have the material or know what that other person's job is and how best to help them do that job, if that makes sense. No, absolutely. Sure. So, you know, that's one of those things I tell anyone, <clears throat> whatever job, you know, I teach at an art college when I'm not writing comics. Um, and one of the things I tell my students is, okay, sure, maybe you're not going to be a storyboard artist, but knowing what a storyboard artist does is super useful to being in this business because then you're going to do work that a story, you know, you know what they expect or you know what the best way to motivate and uh, deliver on on that. You know, mm -hmm. uh, same thing if you're a care, if you're a, maybe you're a character designer, but you're not, um, you're not an animator, but, but if you learn what an animator does, you'll design better characters for animation, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. You know, stuff like that. Yeah. And you, so, so yeah. you seem to enjoy, yeah. uh, teaching a lot because obviously you just said you, you teach at an art college and you also, uh, are kind of, I guess, known in the industry, for having your very in-depth and extensive writing blog with tons and yeah. tons of different articles on different things. What kind of made which you want to... not the plan, which was not the plan, by the way. I did not go <laughs> into this sort of expecting to write 40-plus articles about how to make comics. Uh, they, what I can tell you really was. quick that they've been very helpful. Like, uh, just, just <laughs> off the top there, no problem. It's, it's, it's a really odd kind of thing because, yeah, I totally did not expect to... Um, yeah, for that to have been a thing or like a calling card for me. Yeah. But but it ended up becoming it. What what happened was I think it is the teaching background. Like I've been teaching for quite a while. And people were asking me questions on Twitter about writing comics, pitching comic stories. And there's no way in 140 characters you can explain that. Yeah. You know, in, in any sort of way that's gonna be in depth or interesting. <clears throat> and so I tried to tweet about how I pitch a comic story or what uh what that entails. Uh-huh. And, uh, and it didn't, uh, like I realized there was just no way I was going to get the kind of detail that I wanted out of it. Yeah. And so I, I said, okay, I'll just write this one article about, about how to break in. Cause that's the most common thing that people ask. Well, how did you break in? Of course. Well, here's how you break into comics, you know, and, or any other kind of creative industry. And, um, people loved that article. People went bonkers for it and mm -hmm. really, um, uh, yeah, just absolutely, uh, started sharing it and, and sending it around. And so then people started asking me other questions. Oh, that's how you break in. Well, how do you pitch a story? Well, you, this is what I know about that. So I literally just tell them what I know about that. Yeah. 
And then I realized that it was super advantageous because those are the questions that people are always going to ask. And now I just have to send them a link. And I know that sounds weird. <laughs> it's like I don't have to type on Twitter 400 tweets. Yeah. I can just literally get people because people still, you know, they just found my work or they just found me on Twitter. And they're like, well, but how did you break in? Here's a link. Yeah. <laughs> so it's weird because it's like super useful, but it's also kind of done out of I know it sounds weird to say laziness because it's not lazy, <laughs> but it's like now it's laziness because I can just point you towards the article. Yeah. No. Well, I, now I don't answer that 20 times. It's the it's those uh, organizational skills coming through. Yeah. Yeah. It's like I just want to if I'm going to answer this, I want to answer it once and I want to answer it really well. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll just tell you everything I know as organized as I can. I think that's uh, I think it's something that's, uh, I don't know, really beneficial to the industry because there have been, you know, there have been a lot of creators who have like for, you know, a little while done like a whether it's a column or like a blog or whatever, but they usually kind of fall off. But I've noticed yours like has, has been overall pretty, uh, pretty regular. Yeah, well, I don't update it as much as I used to just because my writing schedule is oh, bonkers right now. But uh, what's good is that most of the stuff is – I don't want to say timeless because that sounds kind of cocky. <laughs> I guess like, the theory of like how yeah. you stay organized or how you pitch a story doesn't change that much. No. Like whether or not the internet is a thing, you know, like you know, it, this is how stories get organized. This is how you know, people understand what you're trying to pitch them or this is what they want to see in terms of overall format or information. Yeah. And I don't think that stuff really changes very much. Um, so it's good in that way that the stuff sticks around, you know, that people are able to get that advice and use it in a way, hopefully that, that they, uh, you know, can, can tell their own stories and stuff. Cause I don't think that stuff, um, has to change necessarily. So no, not at all. Sure. It's uh, I mean, it's, it's regular reading for me a lot of the times going back to some of those articles, even the ones I've already read, like I've just got like a list of like, you know, I think it's like less than 10 bookmarks that I have that are just sort of like comic writing specific i've got yours and then like the old um concentric circles that uh hickman used to do on whatever right. site that was um well, i think what's great is that you know one of the things i try and say in those blogs is not that this is the only way to do it or this is the the you know there is a proper way i think writing you know and pitching and all that stuff it varies quite wildly you know and everyone's got their own kind of ways of of doing things um but if you yeah. see a variety of them hopefully you'll be able to draw upon a bunch of tools and find the ones that work for you. No, absolutely. Um, now, I guess speaking of sort of like teaching and inspiration and things like that, are there, are there any comics, uh, you know, sort of things that you've read before or whatever that have inspired you most? Um, I remember, I think, I'm trying to remember exactly which Sandman. Um, one of the Sandman trades, I think it's Dream Country, has a script from Neil Gaiman in the back and it has his little thumbnail pacing notes. And that was, I think the first time I'd ever seen an actual comic script. And the way Neil writes his scripts is they're like these little motivation letters for the, for the artist. They're like very personalized and very kind of like cheerleading. Hey, this part's really cool. And I hope you like this. And this is whatever you do pacing wise, or if you can follow this panel layout I'm describing, or if you've got a better way of doing it, do it that way. Mm -hmm. But here's what has to come across on this page to be important if, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And so I very much took from that, like, Oh, that's, that's how you communicate with an artist, you know, <laughs> like <laughs> something like that. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. And, uh, so, uh that, yeah, that on, I think was quite inspiring. And then there's this book. Oh man, I, I'm probably going to get the title wrong. 
It was because it, it's a weird little title. I think it's called Comic Writers on Comic Writing. Oh, yeah. I have and that it's one on just a, it's a British book. Uh, and it's just a series of interviews with writers. And um, what's nice about it is there's a bunch of examples of scripts in there. And there's a bunch of examples of sort of working methodologies. And I really like that because it also showed me that there was not just one way of doing it, that it was very much variable. This is what works for this person. And some people are more formalized and some people are more loose, you know, Marvel style versus full script and, yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah, it's uh, so speak, go ahead. Speaking of the speaking of the Marvel style, so uh, all this franchise work, how much how much freedom do you get when you're working on all these projects and how much sort of like how, how, for example, I'm going through Thunderbolts. You've, you've got you've got Bucky Barnes. How much how, do you have to coordinate with other comics and in terms yeah, of Yeah, absolutely. Um yeah. every I would love to say that there was one answer for that, sure. but it's so varied. It varies based on project, it based on editor, based on the building relationship that you have with those teams and editors. So it's like, you know, when you start off on a new project and you're doing this for the first time, you know, you've got to sort of prove yourself. You got to prove, Hey, I can play with the toys. Well, I can, I will treat them properly or whatever, you know, and some editors are more trusting and some are more sort of, you know, and I don't mean this in a bad way. They're more controlling mm-hmm. because, you know, staying on their style of editorial and, and what they prefer as a, as an editor. So, um, it really does vary quite quite heavily. Uh, and then it depends on the project, how tied it is into continuity and what their needs are with the overarching story of something like the Marvel universe. Right. Right. So with Thunderbolts, uh, I had a certain set of story goals that they, that they had for what would eventually be secret empire. Mm -hmm. But then I had my own stuff that was part of my pitch that I said, this is really important to me. I really think this is kind of key to the series that they liked and wanted uh, very much wanted, you know, the reason why I got the book was because they liked that pitch and they liked some of those emotional bits that I had added and, and whatnot. So it's, it's a real, um, it's a team thing in the sense that you've got a place that you have to, you know, you have to be a part of this bigger moving unit of the Marvel universe, but you're also, you know, you have your own story goals. Like I, in an ideal world, you're not just pumping it out for a paycheck, but you're telling a story that means something to you and that you feel strongly about. Uh, and the vast majority of projects I've worked on, that's been the case. And I'm really proud of the fact that I'm not just sort of going through the motions, but I'm actually trying to, you know, tell something that's important to me. And, and, and even within the context of these, these characters and these things that are owned by other people that I've got, uh, something that's going to be fun and, and memorable on my end rather than just, Okay, I'm coldly telling a superhero story or whatever, you know. Sure. Do you do you like do you like those kind of constrictions? I mean, or restrictions? I mean, I, I, it's, uh, yeah. I think, again, it's so variable, right? Like, I do love working on, you know, I love writing superheroes, man. I grew up on this stuff, sure. and it's not always easy because you want, uh, you know, you want to balance your own sort of I've got a cool idea versus, you know, 10, 15 other writers who have cool ideas and are doing their own books. Uh-huh. But I think that playing in that sandbox makes me a better writer. You know, it's like, it's like sure. uh, flexing different muscles that mm. you creative muscles, you know, you have um, those limitations force you to problem solve. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, yeah. 
Yeah, and and I think some people they they can't handle those restrictions as well, and other people thrive on them. Yeah, and you know I love having my creator own work, and that stuff means a lot to me, obviously, because it's built for me, yeah. my own way, the way I would do it. Um, but equally, I love uh, you know working on the the established stuff because it it forces me to problem solve and it forces me to come up with new and better ways to take these known quantities and, and build something new and unexpected, you know? Totally. Yeah. And so, yeah, they're both good. They're both valued. And I love doing both at the same time. Cause then I'm kind of maximizing my, um, you know, what I'm learning and how I'm learning it. And yeah, it's cool. I, I, I don't want to be, some people are like one or the other and I'm yeah. very much like want to be doing all of it. I just want to be writing. Yeah. And, so, to kind of piggyback off of that, you've kind of like across your whole body of work, you have a pretty big variety in terms of like uh, all ages comics or sort of comics yeah. focused on young kids and then mature comics. How do you handle sort of writing for both of those different uh, demographics? Um, it's like you get yourself into a different headspace. Like I try and separate writing both in the same day is kind of, you know, like you're schizophrenic, but <laughs> you, you do, you sort of get yourself in a mode. You're like, okay, today's the day we're writing aspirational, joyful, uplifting stuff for younger readers. And, you know, tomorrow we're going to write something horrific. And it, it's like acting in the sense that you're channeling different parts of yourself. And I think, uh, you know, one, one of the things I, I write is the Dungeons and Dragons comic. And I, I grew up playing a lot of D&D and a lot of tabletop role-playing games. And, and role-playing is about getting into character. You know, it's about figuring out what you want to say or who you are as that character. And so for me, it's almost like getting into the mode. Like, oh, I'm writing Bucky Barnes and the Thunderbolts today. Okay, what are they all about? What do they feel? What do they want? And how do I express that yeah. in an interesting and entertaining way? And the same thing with the, you know, horror stuff or it's almost like putting yourself in a good mood or a bad mood or, a you know, you just sort of – yeah, you get in the character and you know what the overarching plot is. How can we best present that to the to the reader, I guess? Sure. Um, you know, and and it's fun too. Some people are like, I think uh with the Disney stuff I've done, there's this sense of, oh, you're just doing a kids book. You're like, no way, man. Like this is super super fun and super inspiring to me and these stories, you know, I love meeting kids that that read the Disney books I've done and get something out of them. You know, the, the audience for that stuff is, is so deep and engaged and loves these properties. And, you know, if I do a good job with it, I think those all ages books particularly are probably going to last potentially longer than some of my superhero stuff, you know? Oh yeah. Sure. Do you get, do you get anxiety regarding like, or do you, you know, you're sitting down writing and you're like, oh, I, I hope I don't mess up these characters. These are like, because people have such a, you know, the, a love relationship with them? Um, that's a good question. I used to more, it's not to say that it goes away. Sure. I definitely have moments where I get, get anxiety about, am I doing right by this stuff? And I think you should, I think when you're working on these properties, you know, you need to have, you need to love it. And, and it's not to say that I have been a lifelong fan of everything I've written. I become a fan over the course of writing it in a sense. Sure. As, yourself as you research you sort of get into it and you're like oh yeah this has got so much potential and i can see now why people love it um and you get yourself sort of worked up in a good way sometimes uh, it's like ignorance is bliss um <laughs> i was doing that the figment book which mm -hmm. is the the disney kingdoms one and figment and and dreamfinder are these two characters that are part of the epcot center 
at uh-huh. Walt Disney. Yep. And I didn't like, I'm a big animation fan and I love Disney stuff. And, you know, I know those characters, but I didn't realize the depth of the fandom. So there are <laughs> Disney fans and then there are Disney park fans, mm. like specifically Disney World. And then there is like literally Dreamfinder and Figment fans. And they are yeah. like, this character has not been served well in a long time. Like there's merch at the Epcot yeah. and at the Journey to Imagination ride, but they don't really get a lot of attention. And so... And a lot of people grew up. You're talking generational. They've been going that that um, ride has been around since the early '80s. So you're talking multiple generations of people have ridden on that ride and remember those characters and have uh, some deep-seated nostalgia of them. And so when they announced I was working on it, I had already written four out of the five issues of the first miniseries. Mm-hmm. And I was really thankful that I had that much written because I was in a good groove and the Disney Imaginary team really liked what I was doing. And so I had good momentum uh, because as soon as they announced it, I got bombarded with tweets and messages from Disney fans and people yeah. telling how much these characters meant to them and how you know they feel like those characters had not been served well for years and that this was a redemption and wow. you know how it, this meant. And I thought – the purple dragon and the steampunk guy. Whoa. Okay. Like like, I was trying to tell a story that was, you know, meaningful for me as well, but I didn't realize the depth and breadth of that fandom. And so, uh, that was a moment where I was sort of thankful that I had enough kind of script underfoot that I, I, I could just sort of finish that miniseries and not feel like, Oh crap, what am I doing? You know? Um, because you do feel a little bit intimidated, you know, I wrote a, a two-part Legends of the Dark Knight story, and pitching mm-hmm. a Batman story was a nightmare. Like, everyone thinks, oh, that's the greatest thing ever. But if I asked you right now, do you have a Batman story? Yeah. I, yeah I, I, I've been probably, trying to come up with one for years, honestly. Like, I, it's hard. Like One of the bad things about those iconic characters is everything's been done. Exactly. Or it feels like everything's been done. Yeah. So the first day after they asked me to pitch a Batman story was just, like, pure, I want to say depression. Like... <laughs> What what can I what do I have to say about Batman? What do I have to say about yeah. one of the world's most you know iconic media characters? Yeah, I mean, there's there's been more stories written about him than any other character in the world. Pretty much every other superhero. So I'm sitting there at dinner with my wife, and I'm just like a nervous wreck. Yeah. And she's like, "What are you going to do?" I said, "I don't know. Like, what can I do? Batman shovels his driveway. Batman <laughs> eats a burrito. Like, the, everything's been done, man. It's all been done." Um, and so you start sort of losing your mind cause you're like, mm-hmm. this is too big. I don't know if I've got it in me. Yeah. Um, you know, and then you, you start problem solving. You know, my wife was instrumental here cause she's like, you're trying to wrap your head around all the Batman mythos. Yeah. Like you're not telling the Batman story. You're telling a Batman story. You know, why don't you compartmentalize it into something you can get your head around? So we had to figure out the villain first. And then once you get the villain, now you've narrowed the field of stories considerably. Yeah. And you can start to actually go, okay, this is, a, you know, Batman is reacting to this particular villain. I can get an angle on this villain that maybe hasn't been done before. And that suddenly seems controllable. Mm. Sure. You know, and so that's sort of how you have to tackle it. Or you're like, I want to move the ball forward here in this small way, in a way that I think is meaningful and interesting, rather than trying to be like, I will be all things to all people. Yeah. And and so that's one of those things. I you know I can't imagine someone like Dan Slott who's been writing Spider Man for years. Uh So again, 
got this huge character and he's constantly reinventing the wheel. He's constantly finding new angles and takes on one of the world's most popular characters. And I'm like, that's a real, that's an incredible amount of problem solving. That's yeah. an incredible. Amount of, uh, you know, it, it's a tough job to play with the big toys and to make it feel fresh. Yeah. You know, no, absolutely. So I, I'd re- for, I, I, I'm just going to throw this out there. If you write a Batman shoveling the walk story, yeah. I think I'm in. I think I'd like that. Are you down with it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think you're on. I think you're on to something there. I, I did a Harley Quinn story, and at the now it feels like, well, of course you would, but at the mm. time, like Harley was popular, but not like now. Yeah, now she wasn't insane. Yeah, she wasn't but like the, the, time, was, the Deadpool equivalent yeah, was, or whatever. She was kind of beloved and quirky. Um, and one of the best compliments I ever got was I finished that story up, and I got a, a message from Paul Dini, oh, the wow. co-creator of yeah. Harley Quinn. He told me I did a great job. That's amazing. And they wow. that story in uh, sort of like the best of Harley Quinn book. Wow. Uh, oh, yeah. So, I saw that know. actually. They just barely released like that kind of collection. Yeah. Yeah. That. Kind of mind blowing to me, uh, you know, and that book's been printed in a horde of languages and, you know, it's going to stick around for a long, long time. So I feel like I kind of got to make my little mark on yeah. this really on a character. And, and, you know, that's a wonderful, wonderful thing. But at the end of the day, it's like, you know, Batman's not mine and Harley's not mine. And, and, you know, Bucky Barnes isn't mine. Like I love contributing to those things, Uh but the great thing about the creator owned stuff is if someone comes to me at a show and they say, wayward is my favorite comic ever, Mm -hmm. that would not exist. You know, if Steven and I hadn't built that from the ground up. Yeah. And that's that's something really precious, you know, right to the core. That's actually that's a, a good way of segueing kind of to some of the things I wanted to talk about. So sure. you obviously you've written quite a few comics uh, for Image and other creator-owned publishers now. Uh, what do you feel is the sort of, I guess, most major um, effect on the comic book industry of having sort of you know Image and and other creator-owned publishers out there uh what do you what do you think it's done for the comic book industry both on a creator side and on a a fan side well first off i think the biggest successes of the modern era of comics Mm -hmm. have all been creator-owned like Mm -hmm. you know if you look at everything from you know teenage mutant ninja turtles or bone uh amulet or scott pilgrim you know walking dead uh saga like sex criminals they're all creator-owned ideas pushing sort of the medium forward and and pushing out into areas that traditional kind of publishers wouldn't take those risks and wouldn't have the personal investment to take those risks because if you look at those pitches someone said okay we're going to do like a romantic comedy you know video game influenced you know, black and white book, Mm -hmm. like most publishers just be like, oh, this doesn't have anything that we can attach it to commercially that we've seen before. And that's why it does well is because it's unlike other stuff. Yeah. But to a traditional publisher who's risk adverse, they're just like, I don't know what you're doing because I can't compare it to a popular thing. (laughs) And, 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 you know, understandably, because they're taking a financial risk on these books. And so a creator-owned book can do something on pure passion. Yeah. You can get a book like Chew, which has nothing, anything like it anywhere, mm-hmm. and that's why it does well. Not that that's the sole reason why it does well. Just being different alone isn't the only selling feature, but sure. it's certainly a selling feature. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think it's a huge – Yeah, yeah sorry. sorry. No, I, anyway, I, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt no you, but, but I think that that's exactly I, – I mean I think that's what's so – 
you know this 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 immense diversity that we're seeing now with all this creator-owned stuff i I mean i think that that's for for me for me reading marvel 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 forever and then you know and then over the past 10 years sort of diving into all this creator stuff that was the selling point is like oh man the 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 amount of stories i can read now the 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 amount of content there is is and and i think what also does is it it drives the mainstream publishers to realize that they can get take more risks or they can push outwards artistically and do things that they didn't you know realize were possible before and so it becomes both it broadens the mainstream while pushing out into its own you know important areas at the same time and so you know it's absolutely crucial to the lifeblood of comics and the future of comics that there's creator owned and that that stuff is continuing to to widen i think it's absolutely you know, it's the reason why this industry is now become this uh, fountainhead of of creativity for other media. You know that that television studios and movie studios are just looking at comics as this relentless creative force because a it's got a visual component so they can easily get a sense of what's this going to look like on screen Mm -hmm. but it's also got narrative and it's got character and it's got visual and you put it all together in this enticing package yeah Um, you know but on top of that it can do things that other mediums can't and it can do it on a uh, you know on a budget in a sense that a small creative team can really create a singular vision sure and so what do you think? Because I know there's there's been a lot of sort of talk and, and discussion back and forth on uh, certain writers and artists or I guess, you know, even just creative teams who write comics specifically for adaptation. Oh, the, the movie pitch. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. What, what's your view on I that? I think that stuff generally you can tell from a mile away if it's just like a log line. Yeah. If it's like, here's a pitch with panels you know what i mean like (laughs) we we drew all the characters to look like actors you're like oh (laughs) Mm -hmm. whatever like you know i don't begrudge anyone wanting to you know put their stuff out there and ideally if it's quality in one medium then hopefully it's quality across the board yeah so you know that's not really why i got into this stuff of course but at the end of the day i'm not here to you know i don't know cast lightning bolts from on high or something (laughs) Everyone's trying to to make a living doing creative things, and it's tough. Yeah, and there's a variety of ways to do that. You know, I don't begrudge anyone selling an option. I don't not. begrudge anyone, you know, doing work and and trying to get it pushed into other mediums. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, uh, hopefully, the story's still got heart and it's got a core that's more than just cool thing meets popular thing <laughs> in hot genre. You know, like yeah, uh, yeah. I like I said, it, I think a lot of people like a lot of creative mediums whether it's the movies or video games or anything else there's a lot of armchair quarterbacking yeah where people look and they go well i would never do blah <laughs> or i would never sell you know x or i would never cash out for yeah. whatever and it's not to say like i'm lining up at the trough but equally uh it's well, hard to begrudge people once you yeah. once you sort of in the trenches you sort of look and you go hey good for you man <laughs> oh you made some money from hollywood good for you yeah well yeah, I, totally i think May that, we all be so lucky you know yeah I th- I, well and i think that especially in this sort of modern era of of you know huge creator-owned projects i think that that those options and and selling those rights uh has kind of been one of the biggest reasons why a lot of creators have been able to make a living doing this 
Yeah, and you can you can you know keep making your stuff and keep making getting your voice out to a wider audience. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. It's not just yeah. I mean, there's obviously good deals and there's bad deals, yeah. and, and it's complicated. But you know, if you're able to keep making stuff, one of my friends, uh, I don't want to say who because I don't want to out them necessarily. Yeah. They had a uh, a first print copy of Walking Dead number one, and they're an established creator. Mm-hmm. And they they went to one of the comic shows and Kirkman was there signing, and this guy's an image creator and he yeah. comes over and he goes Robert this is really awkward but can you autograph this thing and he goes really and he goes yeah I'm gonna eBay it and he goes oh, oh no and he goes no no but I'm gonna use that money to like pay to get my next image book going and he goes oh I'll sign the hell out of that oh hell yeah like that's <laughs> that's you know someone wants to buy this book for whatever five hundred a thousand bucks and that's gonna help you get another book out yeah yeah man. I'll Sign ten. I'll sign whatever yeah. you want. Like, let's make books. That's awesome. You know? That's something and I had. I was just gonna say that's something that I appreciate about Kirkman is that he seems to be a guy, despite being like a sort of big, you know, I guess big Hollywood guy, quote unquote. Now he's still Kirkman's. The, he's never changed. Kirkman's yeah. the most chill guy. I was at Emerald City Comic Con. And, you know, Kirkman had this ticketed signing and all these special things just to get a photo with him was like a nightmare. (laughs) And then, you know, on the I think it was Saturday or Sunday, he just wandered up to Artist Alley. And if you don't know what he looks like, no offense. And Robert wouldn't be offended. He just looks like any old comic nerd. He's just like a bearded T-shirt. He doesn't wear, you know, anything different than what he wear when he started in this business. (laughs) And he just wanders up and wanders around Artist Alley. and He's got a baseball cap on and. He just talks to you, you know, and a yeah. certain number of people have got that holy crap look on their face because they realize who he is mm-hmm. and everyone else just wanders by because he's he looks like your average dude. Yeah. No. You know? And that's really what I think is so great about him is that he yes, he's incredibly smart and his business sense is great and he's got a great sense of storytelling and entertainment. But at the end of the day, he's still a comic guy and he's still a fan and he's still just a good dude making books. And so and yeah. he wants other people to tell stories and he wants them to do it at image. Yep. No, totally. It's like his I think his manifesto thing that you know, that video that he recorded and sent out about yeah. a max exodus mass exodus from uh, the big two or whatever, I think that was kind of a you know, it, it did sort of accomplish its mission, I think. In it did. Now, what was so weird about when it came out? I think everyone was sort of like, "Man, that seems really snide, and that seems very, you know, um, cocky or whatever you want to put it like that." Yeah. But it really was forward thinking in the sense he kind of could see a few moves ahead where the business was going. Absolutely. You know, and, and he held out too. There were other offers for Walking Dead you know, for TV and movies. And he held out till he had a deal that was creatively fulfilling and financially, you know, strong for him yeah. in a way that allowed him to, to adapt it so strongly and take those strengths that it held to the medium, you know, and that's a hard thing to do. Like when there's money on the table or people making offers and you, mm-hmm. you, you think to yourself, is this, is this my one shot? You yeah. know, like you know, two two in the like two in the bush, one in the hand. Like, what do I do? You know. Yeah, it's and it's got to be a hard decision to make because you know, on the one hand, it's like this could be you know, like for any creator, it's like oh, this could be my Walking Dead, you know, or my this could be whatever my financial dependence. Yes. you know, to make to make decisions. You know, in a sense, teaching is not obviously it's not my Walking Dead money, but teaching <laughs> gives me a certain amount of um, it gives me safety a safety yeah, net. Stability. 
as people are like, oh, you're writing for Marvel. I'm amazed that you still have a day job. And it's like, well, you know, I'm writing for Marvel, but there are tons of people who wrote for Marvel for years and they're not writing for them now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and not because they don't want to. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. The industry can be fickle and things can change. And that's part of and what he so, was talking about, I think, too, is in yeah. that sort of manifesto is like, you know, creator owned books and, and, you know, sort of ha- like having ownership of these properties allows people a lot more stability and reliability when you know when they're going yeah, at least at least you own the thing yeah you know at least you control the thing it's not to say that everyone's going to get a movie contract or everyone's going to get a big payout but at the end of the day you can decide something in a way that like and i and i don't say this to begrudge marvel or anybody but like yeah. if you know if they can fire jack kirby mm-hmm. uh you know what what job security do you have yeah. <laughs> you know no, if they totally. can fire Chris Claremont off X-Men after 17 years and making it the top-selling book in the industry yep. for many of those 17 years, yep. what, what do you think you're invaluable? Really? <laughs> yeah. You know, and I say that as a guy doing work for Marvel, and yeah. I, you know, and, and and I don't, you know, and it's what it's what the industry is. It's to have a backup plan. Yeah, it's not like it's not anything begrudging. It's just that's that's what Marvel and DC do. That's their prerogative. They're always adapting and trying to, you know keep things fresh or whatever and that's and that's that's their role and and with you yeah, know yeah. image and and with it's other it's funny though because it used to be that uh, you know it felt like years ago people would do create own books to to you know prove themselves and then the idea was that you would settle in on a marvel or a dc project mm-hmm. and now it feels like you bounce back and forth like you do create your own to get on the radar and then you do marvel dc and then that gives you enough of a, a brand oh, and a name yeah. then you go back to create your own and and you know sell a hojillion copies or whatever <laughs> yeah you do you do your saga or sex criminals ideally right yeah you know so that's kind of been the interesting thing is seeing how that power dynamic has sort of shifted back and forth, especially now when the monthly issues don't sell the kind of numbers they used to. Mm-hmm. And, a, and a, a, even a marginal image hit can potentially pay you as much as a Marvel book, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's so obviously uh, with you, you know, being a big you know, contributor with the sort of image lineup over the past few years, I kind of wanted to, to talk about some of your image books and things that you've been doing. Um, so first, I, I just wanted to talk about Glitter Bomb a little bit. Um, sure. That started. Let's see, Glitter Bomb started being published in what was it August last year, September? Uh, yeah, like like first week of September. So tell me about how that idea came to be. What inspired Glitter Bomb for you? And I guess for people who haven't read it, obviously, uh, you know, a little. I can give you there. the quick pitch. Yeah. Yes, Glitter Bomb is a Hollywood horror story about uh, an an actress, a middle aged woman who's a mother and an actress, and her star has not soared to the heights that she hoped it would, and she's had a lot of difficulties, and her sort of frustrations and emotional turmoil over where she thinks her her career should have gone and her failures has sort of manifested itself or or kind of acted as a lure to some sort of creature, and now uh, she's under its thrall or moving it in some way and is going to get revenge on Tinseltown. And so she wants to tear down sort of celebrity culture as a whole and destroy Hollywood, uh, as in this redemptive, horrific, sarcastic, uh, story that, uh, is just big and tragic and, and bloody. <laughs> it is, it is very bloody. Um, I, I really enjoyed that story. What's, uh, Thanks. What, yeah, no problem. Uh, what was it that inspired it? What what 
brought the idea to you? Because I know it's also a pretty big departure from a lot of the things that you had been doing. Yeah, prior. yeah. The guy, we we kept joking around on the on the cover of the trade paperback. We're gonna say, brought to you by the writer of Figment. You know, it's like, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but but it, it all the all the creator owned stuff. I mean, a lot of the stories, they're all. Whenever you're writing character stuff, if you're doing it well, I think you channel little bits and pieces of yourself. Yeah. Um, and so all my creator owned books are like little focused aspects of different, I don't know, times in my life or memories I have of things. And Glitter Bomb is definitely the most uh, recent. So Glitter Bomb is like kind of reflective of kind of my own fears of failure, my own fears about where my sort of career ends or whether my contribution, you know, creatively just sort of peters out and I am not remembered or cared about. I know it sounds really awful and depressing, but that's kind of, <laughs> that's the, those emotional notes you sort of delve into. Yeah. Um, I hit a weird patch just before I got Samurai Jack. I had a few projects that I had lined up that seemed like they were going to be the next milestone in my career. Of course. And they all burned out. Oof quickly and i was like oh oh that's it that was as high as you're gonna get that's as far as you're gonna go yeah this is the down slide now you don't get to keep climbing this is the decline and i was like well i guess I, what i thought was the next plateau was actually the peak <laughs> yeah. of my career oh. and i started sort of channeling some of this frustration into writing about it on my own sort of personal level yeah. and thinking about it and being like, why was I so stupid to think that I would be famous at this? You know, there's that old saying of like one in a million. Yeah. Well, what happened to the other 999,000? Like what happens to everyone else who thought they were so special and so great and so destined for greatness, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. And I was like, what are those people's stories like? <laughs> and so I started digging into this idea of, you know, personal failure and, and loss and regret and, and, um, you know, getting close, but not close enough, if you will. Yeah. And kind of channeled that into, well, what's the most extreme setting I could put that into? And Hollywood seemed like such a natural because of fame, because of celebrity, because of the visibility and the allure of being famous in that environment. And then I said, well, who's got it? Who's, potentially in one of the worst spots you could be. Well, okay, a middle-aged woman where that glass ceiling has struck. Oh, you're no longer young and beautiful. We don't want you anymore. Mm -hmm. And you're not old enough to play the grandma. So you can just get to be wiped out. You just don't exist in the Hollywood system. And so it kind of allowed me to channel a bunch of those negative emotions into a dramatic story and sort of learn about more about how Hollywood works and how women are treated in that environment and sort of enlighten myself and turn it into something cathartic and engaging and, and entertaining at the same time. That's awesome. Yeah. I, I love it. I mean, it, and it's, it's really cool. I, and I think it's how a lot of people will write, uh, you know, sort of horror things like that, where you kind of delve into that thing that's really, you know, raw in your own, yeah. you know, in your own life and, and, draw it out which has got to be just like a painful experience to write about because it's just over it's and over. though because when you when you write that dialogue when you write those moments i think there is a bit of a rawness of it there's that sense of you don't just no one ever says exactly what they feel do you know what i mean of everyone's course. always got 
a sort of shell around them. And so the more you kind of expose, whether it's through actions or through dialogue, you know, the more raw and nasty you're sort of getting to the, to the core of it. And it, it's interesting. Cause I didn't know if I had it in me. Yeah. Like, you know, I, I, I find it not easy, but much easier to write action or comedy or sort of sarcasm and, and glibness, uh, and so here I said to myself, I'm going to write horror, yeah, uh, character-driven horror. Do I have it in me? Like I know there's material worth exploring, but can I actually make this compelling? Yeah. And that was a real challenge for me, and I'm glad I did it. And even if it would have failed, and yeah. it's entirely possible you know, it could have failed, um, it was like a worthy experiment, for lack of a better term. I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. And have you, and I mean, you don't obviously have to give specifics on this or anything, but have you had a time where you're writing a story that kind of like touches, you know, touches a nerve so much that like it, it makes you, you know, like, like legitimately sort of like emotional while you're, you're writing, whether it's, you know, like tears or sort of jumping for joy or anything like that. Like, have you, have you had that? Experience? Yeah. I, I mean, there's definitely that element of acting I was talking about. It's yeah. like, you kind of get yourself into a mode, um, you know, when I'm on a roll, when things are going well, it sounds really dumb. I don't know how else to say this without sounding stupid, but <laughs> yeah. I, it's not like laughing at your own jokes. You know what I mean? Like yeah. I'll write a particular line of dialogue and I'll be like, that is hilarious. You know, or like, <laughs> that is really, oh, that is really compelling. Like I need a moment to sort of absorb what I just put down. It's not like I think everything I write is great. Don't get me wrong. I have a lot of that typical, you know, creative ego of good God, why are they hiring me? But when something really hits, when you strike that mark on, on the bullseye and you go, yeah, that, that's the right, that's the right note. That's the right moment. That's the right line. Yeah. And it sort of drives back through yourself. Like that's you, you're doing that. You're feeling that. Um, Writing, uh, weirdly, Samurai Jack, I had a couple of those because cool. the Samurai Jack series was near and dear to my heart. And I felt like what was so amazing about that show was we could get um, cerebral on this weird cartoony kids show. You could get almost yeah. zen-like in some of them or you could be very emotional about it. And Jack's such a dramatic character, you know, offset to all these weird and alien and robots and all these kooky stuff yeah and so every so often we would strike a chord and i would go like yeah that's the stuff right there that's <laughs> what i wanted to you know strike gold with or whatever um and it's a good feeling to know that you know you're you're i feel like if you are affected emotionally or if you can consistently sort of push through to something true yeah then ideally you're going to get that through the page to the reader not every single chapter not every single page but you know, that, that you've got something real there behind the, on, I don't know, all the circus, you know, uh, fancy art and pretty, pretty, uh, coloring and crazy, whatever. Yeah, of course. Um, and on, so on glitter bomb, you were working with, uh, with Jabril Morissette fan who yeah. was like a complete, I, I think like revelation in terms of just discovering sort of an unknown it's artist. So it's amazing. Young. Oh my God. He started working on the book when he was 21. Wow. And he turned 22 while we were working on the miniseries together. Wow. Uh, he is honestly one of the most skilled artists at that age that I've ever seen. Um, and he just got it. Like, he really zeroed in. I had pitched him. So I met him at Montreal Comic-Con. Yeah. I got introduced to a mutual friend of ours. And the minute I saw his portfolio, actually, the first thing I thought his portfolio was, this is not his artwork. I thought I thought he was inking someone else's pencils. You know what I mean? Oh, like yeah, it was yeah. inking. Yeah. So I just thought this is 
so good. Like, who's the penciler? And it, it was him. <laughs> and then I was like, okay, so did you spend like a week on each page? And he, no, no, he's doing like a page a day wow. of this wow. unbelievable pro quality work. And at first I was just totally rocked by that. Like, just look at the quality of this stuff. Yeah. And so he's like, I was get, supposed to give him a portfolio critique. And my critique was, hey, let's do a book. Um, <laughs> and so I said, you know, I, I, I like casting artists based on something there, particularly for creator owned. Like, let's do something you're going to be pumped about. I'd rather make something from scratch with you yeah. than... Uh, try and force a, a square peg into a circular hole. Like I want you to be excited. And with creator owned in particular, you need to cast, you know, appropriate. Yeah. So I sent him a bunch of uh, different ideas that I'd had percolating around for a while. And glitter bomb was just one of them. And that was the one that he glommed onto, you know, then this sort of uh, grounded gritty Hollywood horror. And he really dug it. Uh, the the initial concept. And so that was weird because that was one of these things I'd had sitting around but didn't have a clear vision for exactly how it was going to look and when I was going to do it. And all of a sudden, that was the one he attached to. And it's like I have to turn into it. I have to sort of go, remember how you felt when you wrote that? Yeah. Let's do that again. Let's dredge <laughs> those emotions and try and pull that out of yourself because you're going to do it now. We're going to do that thing. Yeah, And uh, that's been, you know, between Skull Kickers and Wayward, <clears throat> there was four years between those two books launching. And people were like, oh, I'm amazed you had four-year gap between launching two creator-owned books. And it's like, not from lack of trying, trust me. <laughs> uh, you're looking for artists. You're looking for the right, you know, getting all the stars into alignment. Yep. Uh, trying to find the right artist, the right publisher, the right launch period and mm -hmm. approvals and all that. And so Glitter Bomb it actually happened so fast. It kind of shocked me <laughs> because I'd met him in the, oh God, it must've been July. And we had it attached that image by October. Wow. That's then, so uh, fast. Yeah. And we had the first issue done by Christmas. That's and insane. So was, yeah. And then we were, you know, we, we, we were going to originally launch it early summer and Image had too many other books launched, and they asked us to wait till late summer. So we had all four done by the time the first one came out. Wow. Uh, that was the weirdest feeling was actually having a finished miniseries, yeah. and we were doing lettering edits. I had months to just do little dialogue tweaks and things. <laughs> and that never happens. Like, no. you know, most of the time, Wayward or any of the other books, you're doing, you're doing lettering proofs, and you can feel the sweat forming because you got to get this thing off to press days hours from now you know yeah. and and this is just like in some ways it made me paranoid because i had so much time to sit on it that i was yeah. almost like what if it sucks then i have no one to blame because i couldn't <laughs> fix it you know <laughs> like if you get something out the door just narrowly under the wire and you're like whoo we did it okay oops there's a mistake well what can you do you know yeah but here it was like we were sitting on it for months and i was like if there's a single spelling mistake i will kill myself you know oh of course <laughs> um <laughs> And so, so, so go ahead. Well, I'm jumping in. So on, on, uh, my, so in glitter bomb, my, my, the most intriguing thing to me that, that, uh, throughout the story is the lack of knowing what this, what's going on. Right. Uh, what was your sort of like intention and motivation there? Because I, I, it's so, I, I find it rare these days where you, where people deliberately don't tell you. And I think it's refreshing to not know. I think it adds much to the to bigger, you know, side of the mystique in this. 
Um, uh, for me, yeah. it was it's because the story is about it's a character horror more mm-hmm. than it's a creature horror. Sure. Like to me, I didn't want it to be codified. I didn't want it to be like it's it's vulnerable to silver, you know, like yeah. if you just get a bunch of bullets, <laughs> we'll shoot it and it'll die. Or they're like, it doesn't like salt or something like, yeah, like yeah. I didn't want it to salt be about, blue. Doesn't like yeah, salt I didn't blue. want it to be about the creature. I didn't want it to be about, Oh, you see it's doing this specific thing. So if we figure out it's, you know, if we put a bunch of limitations on it, then we can box it in and hunt it down and take it out. It's like, it is real and it's all really happening, but it's also this emotional thing that's happening. And it's this response to celebrity and this response to, you know, uh, Farrah's emotional state and, and the people she's interacting with and the terrible things that have happened to her. And that that's the core of the story. So if the emotions are true, then the reaction is right. If yes. that makes sense. Absolutely. Rather than the creature being like, well, well, how far can it stretch its tongue? Yeah. <laughs> well, if they, they just, Drive away far enough, it won't get them. Like, I didn't want it to be like that. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, did you ever see that movie, It Follows? Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah that, which is why that was movie so... Yeah. You're like, how does it work? I don't know, but it, we can't stop it. No, totally. <laughs> and it doesn't matter how it works because you no. get the, it's all about the story. It scares the crap out of you, right? Absolutely. Like that's, yeah. So it's kind of this, not the exact same thing, obviously, but there's this aspect of don't focus on well, what's its name? You know what yeah. I mean? It's like, yeah, 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 yeah. it's like, no, it's about her. The story's always been about her and it's about what she's going to do and how far is it going to go? And yeah. that's kind of why I think it works. Um, you know, and, and the, the mystery of it isn't mystery intent on giving you an absolute answer. It's an emotional effect that it has that takes you to the conclusion. Mm-hmm. And so speaking of that, that sort of like monster and, and obviously not to explain too much or anything, but uh, what, where did the idea come from for the visuals of this monster? Was that something that you wrote into the script or was that something that Jabril sort of came to you with? Jabril brought a lot to it. We were talking about sort of, you know, weird, disgusting stuff. And we were, I was sending like weird, gross things, uh, reference materials and insect parts and sort of (laughs) underwater uh, elements and just sort of saying like it's almost like a texture board like you're sort of saying here's a bunch of atmospheric stuff you know turn it into something parasitic mm-hmm. and and disgusting and weird and don't worry about even consistency because when it emerges it doesn't necessarily have to look the same every single time you know yeah or even react the same um, but the, here's sort of the overall visual kind of cues for it and then Jabril really ran with it from there so again, That's it awesome. was more like an emotional thing rather than a, you know, it, let's make an exact ecology for it. Yeah. That's awesome. That. I love it. Um, so you've also had between skull kickers and wayward. Those are kind of two of the longer running Marvel image series period, obviously, especially of, of your works. But I mean, it's very rare that, you know, a sort of creator owned series is, is able to run for, you know, what six seven volumes i can't remember how long uh, uh kickers with 34 issues in total so six wow. volumes and wayward's coming into we're working on arc five right now wow um well, skull kickers was like an exercise in me being really stubborn <laughs> like 
No, it's so true. I don't know how else to explain it. I, I try and tell people. Skull kickers, if I looked at the real numbers, if I did the accounting on skull kickers, and I have many times, uh-huh. um, it didn't. It stopped, stopped making money around issue, oh, maybe, I think 13 or 14. <laughs> <laughs> and so we just, but at the time, I was starting, just starting to get traction with my, with my uh, other writing. Yeah. And the only thing I could count on was if I put out Skull Kickers, I knew that it would be released. Yeah. And so um, I could sort of drill down and, and pay for the art. And, you know, the book wasn't losing money in terms of being printed, but if, you know, money coming back to me that covered all the creative costs. So image was fine to keep printing at it because they could cover their printing and distribution bill. Yeah. And I could just sort of drill down and go, look, I'm putting out a book every you know month or, you know, what five in a row and then a break and then five in a row. Yeah. And so it was like a proving ground for me to show people, look, I put out a consistent product. It's good. It's quality. You know, we're doing this thing. And pretty stubborn, like, you know, <laughs> because I had a story I wanted to tell. And I once we finished the initial mini series of Skull Kickers, I got it in my head that we were going to do six. And that was wow. probably, stupid. Um, you know, and from a financial point of view, like I said, after kind of book three, it was financially probably not the smartest idea. <laughs> and I had conversations with other people about this. I talked to Kirkman about this. Robert tried to talk me out of doing more. He was just sort of like, the book's not making money. You stop. You're like, it's going to six, goddammit. No, he was like, look, man, we did Tech Jacket. It didn't sell. We go on to the next thing. Yeah. You know, he did a a bunch of other, he did a bunch of books. Mm -hmm. He did Battle Pope and all these other books that didn't hit. And he's like, you get in there, you do your thing, you give it your best shot. It doesn't work. You move on to the next one. Yeah. And I'm like, I totally respect you, Robert. And I totally, I can't disagree with anything you're saying, but (laughs) I'm going to do this stupid thing this way. Yeah. Uh, and and he totally respected me for it. He's like, cool, man. Like, if you got to get it out of your head, then do it. But but you could have three other ideas on the table. I'm like, yep, you're right. I'm going to run over here in a wall, you know. Um, <laughs> but it worked for me. And, and I was able to, again, show that we could put out a consistent thing. Yeah. And I'm really super proud of the book. And it's not like it's, you know, obviously, if it was such a financial burden that I couldn't afford it, then we wouldn't have done it. Yeah, yeah. But we were able to pull it off. And now I've got, you know this 34 issue thing, which we published as six slim trade paperbacks and three big fat deluxe hardcovers. Nice. Um, and it's sort of, it was the foundation of my career and all the other projects that led from it, whether it's, you know, Dungeons and Dragons and Pathfinder and, mm-hmm. uh, the street fighter stuff and, and, um, you know, legends of the dark Knight and all that. Yeah. Makes wouldn't it have happened. Kickers. Yeah. And so if you look at it on some total, Obviously, it's made money in the sense of it built my creative career, uh-huh. but it on its own merits, it's more questionable in terms <laughs> of its financial positive or negative. But um, you know, but then Wayward wouldn't have happened without Skull Kickers, obviously, and yeah. Wayward has been profitable throughout and been a real calling card. And that's one of the nice things about doing creator-owned work is that the minute that people have hedged me in and sort of said, Oh, you're a fantasy guy, you do sword and sorcery. So, you know, I did Pathfinder and I did, um, I do Dungeons and Dragons. Now I did Samurai Jack, um, to a lesser degree, you know, mm-hmm. figment, but I did that Conan red Sonya book. Yeah. I did another red Sonya special. Like it was pretty much like Jim's the fantasy guy. If there's a dragon <laughs> in it or someone's hefting a sword, like throw it over to Zuck, which is not a bad place to be, yeah. but it was definitely kind of boxing me in. Yeah. And then, 
I just turn a corner and I did wayward and people were like, Oh, he can do an ensemble and team books and teenagers. And like, all of a sudden it just opens up this other Avenue. Yeah. Surprise. You, you know, you thought I could do this, I can do that. And then the minute that people sort of have me pegged, then I do glitter bomb and they're like, Oh, he's, he's a really angry person sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> this, this is, this is, uh, we just thought he was funny, you know? And so, so now it's sort of opened up other things that if I talk about doing something dark, um, people will actually, they're not going to be like, I don't know. I don't know if he can do it. You know, now it's sort of like, oh yeah, you know, he could, he could turn that corner potentially. So, yeah, just kind of diversifying. And that's, that's cool. I think that that's kind of a, a benefit that doesn't get seen too much about image and creator owned works in general is it allows people to keep diversifying. When I don't think, you know, someone like uh, Becky Cloonan, beautiful, beautiful art, you know, she's doing these creator owned, she would do these self-published books. And all of a sudden she's sort of like, look, I'm a writer. Yeah. You know, like I have beautiful African artwork and you'll want me for your covers. Surprise. I can write just as good as I can draw. Yeah. You know, and, and it opens up a whole other avenue. <clears throat> and with creator own, no one's going to tell you, you can't do it. No one's going to tell you, you know, Oh, well you can't get away with that. You're like, whatever I can self publish it. I can put it online. You, you know, I can put this thing out there and this is, an aspect of me yeah. now, you know, now it's part and parcel of my, uh, portfolio and, and my, you know, my library for lack of a better term. Yeah. And I think, um, I do yeah, just want to bring up wayward really quick sure. because I I'm really, say, do you have any questions? Cause I, well, I felt like you were, you, you, you've been hanging it. <laughs> I know. There. I didn't want you to feel like you weren't, you weren't I, in... I, I have to assert myself yeah. between, Don't... Jason talks a whole lot. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry, yeah. Rachel. It's it's your 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 floor. Go. All right, Rachel. You got it. Dig in. All right. So I I'm about uh, I believe on the fourth volume of Wayward, and I absolutely love it. I'm a huge anime fan, but I do just want to ask you why put a redheaded Irish girl in the middle of Japan in the middle of this huge story with monsters <laughs> okay so first off um the the her being half irish and half japanese is absolutely core to yeah. some of the bigger aspects of the story some of those haven't been fully kind of revealed yet um so it's not just like random uh to give people a quick intro to wayward waywards my my joke pitch is it's buffy in japan but it's um, <laughs> it, it is <laughs> yeah teenagers fighting japanese mythological monsters on the streets of uh, tokyo but as you realize in the later volumes there's bigger sort of movements about modern myths and the way that the supernatural in our modern world uh sort of clash and so the reason why we called the book, you know, wayward instead of just like Japanese kids kill monsters or something is because it's not just a story about Japan. And as you see in volume three and four, four, most of all, where they go to Ireland and they start interacting with other aspects of the supernatural, there's a bigger story to be told. And Japan is sort of the, a huge part of it, but it's not the only part of it. And so I didn't want to tell just a Japanese story. I wanted to tell a story about myth. And that's why this girl who is, uh, as the Japanese would call her, hafu, or she's half and half, she's half mm. of one culture and half of another, is actually integral to what we're trying to do. On top of the fact that I think that um, having a character who was coming into Japan at the start of the first volume 
gave us an excuse and a way to introduce these ideas in a way that wasn't obnoxious. So there's a terminology we use called a touchstone character, that if a character is being brought into a, a new circumstance, well, then they have to be educated. And as they're educated, the reader is educated. So as much as you can be a fan of Japanese culture and mythology in Tokyo and read Wayward and enjoy it, if you don't know those things, I want you to have a way in. I want you to be able to understand it. So as Rory learns about it, the reader learns about it. As she finds out what yokai are and how she relates to them, um, the reader finds out at the same time. So rather than playing inside baseball and using all this terminology that uh, an outsider wouldn't understand, we can introduce it in a logical fashion. As Rory learns, you learn. And so that's why we had to have an outsider come into the story and with everything else we're building her Irish heritage and half Japanese heritage becomes part and parcel of that. Yeah. I, I absolutely love it. I just ended where she's in Ireland. So oh, I, I haven't, yeah. I haven't quite got there yet, but I, I'm really, really enjoying it. And I, I love just all the Japanese things in it as well. The shape shifting and all the cats, obviously. <laughs> Everyone loves the cats. I, I, so I have a funny uh, little bit of trivia for you. So I also love all the cats and all the craziness. Uh, both Stephen and I, so we're the co-creators. He's the artist on it. And I'm the writer. We're both allergic to cats. <laughs> so that's one of the funniest things. It's like people send us cat photos now and they're like so obsessed with the the many cats of Japan and Ayane and all that stuff. And I actually can't I can't pet cats. I get like I literally like break out in, in hives and stuff. Wow. Uh which is hilarious. But do uh you know, <laughs> but love love uh the way that they play through in the book and I love Japan. Like Steven lives over there. He lives in Yokohama, which is just a short subway ride from Tokyo. And oh, I cool. visit uh, frequently. And so we, yeah, love working on the book. And it, it's been a huge challenge for us because we've got real life, uh, a real life place. So we're not just, you know, don't get me wrong. Writing is always tough. But when you have a fantasy world and you're like, yeah, sure, that's part of it. Great. But here it's like a real place with real locations. And then we've got we're channeling real aspects of the mythology to make it all a cohesive kind of whole with an ensemble cast in multiple locations, <laughs> building <laughs> yeah. this big kind of plot. So it's, it's the densest thing I write and it takes me the longest, but I'm also super proud of it. So. Yeah. It, it's definitely one of my favorite series right <laughs> now you. that I'm reading. So. That's very, very cool to hear. And and again, like I was saying earlier, when someone tells me, you know, it's, it's their favorite book or it got them back into comics or, you know, whatever, it means so much to me because the book wouldn't exist without us. And so uh, near and dear to my heart to hear that from people. Yeah, Rachel, Rachel keeps trying to convince me to read it. So at some point soon, I've got to pick it up. I keep like my stack <laughs> just keeps getting bigger and bigger with all these comics that I have to read. And especially oh, I know it's like, my reading pile is, is heinous at this point. And once you start digging into a certain aspect of Marvel, you have to keep up on the books just for continuity sake. Oh yeah. And so like I've, I've, it sounds like we I enjoy the books, but it's also kind of homework. Oh yeah. Yeah. That, that actually leads into, uh, what I, what I was going to ask. And I think this is kind of a, so we, we like to do a sort of like a, a lightning round. Hmm? 
like a rapid fire. So, yeah. uh, but mine, mine was kind of, uh, what, what's on your, what's on your pull list? That's not homework. What are you, what are you, oh, what are you, di- what are you, what are you diving into for, for joy? Good question. <laughs> not as much as I would like because it's all homework right now. Um, I, I, I love atomic robo. Uh, oh, I yeah, think yeah. that, uh, Clevenger and Wegner do one of the most consistently enjoyable and adventurous and, and pure comics. It's, uh, it makes me so happy. Uh, to read that book. I joke around that Atomic Robo is the comic I wish I had written. Like I really do. Uh, and I'm a slobbering fanboy for that for that series. You and me both, And I man. feel like they do it uh, better than just about everybody. Um, so that one's an easy <laughs> one. Um, Letter 44 over at Oni Press is a oh, really yeah. Cool yeah. politics and sci-fi um, uh, hybrid that I think uh, hits – on all the marks and I think it's really sharp and it's coming to an end soon, which has me kind of nervously excited to see how it all, I, I really want Charles to stick the landing yep. and uh, I'm super excited about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Invincible is one of the best superhero comics. Um, and it's, I love it more than walking dead. I think that like Invincible mm-hmm. is, it takes all of the awesome stuff I loved about comics when I was growing up in the eighties and then it makes every single revelation and payoff stick <laughs> in a way that in that 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 you know the big two kind of can't yeah yeah uh, sure. because of the nature of it and so i think that that's really to me that's robert's legacy like obviously the walking dead or whatever but yeah invincible's jam i really really love that book so we've and, been we've, we've been trying to get we've been trying to get rachel to read invincible for probably a year and a half now <laughs> Uh, it's so good. And, yeah, it, and it, help us with you our You think it's so simple. You think it's just like, ah, oh, it's another superhero story. And yeah. then it just bots blow. And you're like, well, they can't do that. Oh, baby, did they ever? Yeah. And then it just like keeps delivering. It's so sharp. I can't uh, believe I that he it, wanted to wait until like issue 25 for that first sort of big twist yeah, in the but, story. You know, yeah, it's, it was a different time. <laughs> <laughs> You could, you know, I could sort of see the mindset on it, but yeah, I, I under, you know, it's so good. Yeah, it's killer in every way. It's. I'll get to it. I'll get to it. <laughs> um, on the superhero front, I, I do read Dan's uh, Spider-Man uh, methodically every month, even though I'm not in the Spider Office or doing anything for them. Yeah. Uh, I love reading Spider-Man. Still, he actually kind of that brought me back when when I hadn't been reading Spider-Man for years. And when Dan started on, he did this arc called Big Time. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was sort of his uh, taking over Amazing Spider-Man. That's when I started reading again. Uh-huh. And I've been uh, reading it all the way through Superior and everything else. I do love it. Uh, it's solid stuff. And even like the weakest Dan Slott issue, I'm still like, yeah, no, it's still pretty sharp. <laughs> and when it's good, it's like soaringly wonderful. So uh, it's one of my favorite uh, books right now. I like the current Green Arrow quite a bit. I think it's really well put together. Yes. Um, I like Super Sons. I think it's like a lot of fun. You got that Super, so fun. Uh, you know, Robin and Superboy going on adventures together. And um, yeah, yeah, We're... I think it's it's super solid. And and what's great about it is I don't know that with those kid characters, particularly Damian Wayne and stuff, mm-hmm. I feel like you can. They're so much more flexible than their their fathers yeah you know what i mean oh yeah like i i just feel like there's so much yeah they can just do and and tomasi is an incredible writer yeah that guy's able to balance continuity and you know fun kind of emotional bits in a way that 
is envious. Yeah, and he, I mean, he and Gleason, because I mean, Gleason, I guess on on Super Sons is just co-writing, but they've they've been such a great, consistent team over the past few years. It's really incredible to yeah. watch their work. Yeah, yeah, totally. So those are kind of the the those are three that I th- you know superhero wise that jump out at me. I'm reading hordes of other stuff, um, <laughs> but yeah, in the grand scheme of things, those are the ones that are really kind of making making waves for me awesome well uh to, to kick off the lightning round matt has kind of a sort of a thing that we've been doing lately matt's a uh a, a, a big music I got it. Fan, I can, I can, but also I a big can music talk about fan. it myself musician yeah, i got it okay <laughs> okay he's a big boy we're gonna rock through these and wrap up oh yeah we'll rock through these and then then we'll wrap up okay uh, yeah, yeah. So as, as he was saying, so uh, music, music is such a huge, important part of my life. So I've started kind of doing music pairings uh, on, our, on our show when we do reviews and we talk about comics. I talk about oh. what 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 kind of music stuff that I like to listen to. But I got you here. What would be your music pairing for Glitter Bomb? Oh, man. Uh, Glitter Bomb is Portishead. Yes. Mm, love it. Nice. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, you just put on his head and that's that's all you need actually i love it awesome yeah. uh rachel do you go for the... yeah yeah go ahead oh it's me next yep. you next okay who is your favorite villain oh um probably probably harley quinn um I, I think she's absolutely wonderful and i like her when she is manipulatively evil rather than sort of um like that that she's putting on the silliness that beneath that there's something much more devious rather than just being like, Oh, Mr. J. And she's got, she's vapid. You know, I like the, that little bit of darkness sort of swirling underneath that silly surface. Yeah. Um, so she's probably my favorite trying to think. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm pretty happy with that. (laughs) Then, uh, on the, on the other side of that coin, who's your favorite hero? Oh, uh, it's the, the cliche of cliches. It would be Spider-Man. Um, but, <laughs> but fighting, fighting for dominance around that is probably Dr. Strange. Cause to me playing Dungeons and Dragons as a kid, he was like the best cause he was a wizard and he was a superhero. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. And I was like, fantasy superhero. This guy <laughs> is the best. And so I kind of, kind of, yeah, Dr. Strange and Spider-Man are in like a, a death choke out, uh, for me. Yeah. <laughs> Matt? Uh, all right. If you, if you were going to lose memory of writing all of your comics except for one, which would you keep? Oh, God. <laughs> well, that's awkward. Um, uh, I, you know, I, I've got such a – oh, that's weird, right? Like, it's tough. Uh, I probably Skull Kickers just because nothing else happens without it. So that's always going to have that soft spot for me. Sure. That makes yeah. sense. Um, Rachel, Rach. Oh, um, if you could only read one comic for the rest of your life, no. what would <laughs> it be? Penultimate no. question. <laughs> no. oh, that's brutal. <laughs> um, I don't know. That's uh, that would change from week to week, probably. Like I, you know, I could say Atomic Robo today, and then I might say Sandman next week. I'm just trying to get as many answers in here as I can. Yeah, of course. Uh, and then lock and key another time. You know, so <laughs> it really varies uh, quite a bit. Yeah. So I, I don't think I can hunker down on one, unfortunately. No, I couldn't either. Sense. Yeah, I know, right? Um, where do you typically read? 
in bed before I go to sleep, I have a tablet. Most of my stuff's digital at this point. There you go. And I uh, sit there, and my wife and I both read in bed, and then occasionally we look over at each other and go, "How's it going? Is it good?" <laughs> whatever, whatever you're reading. She's reading a novel. I'm reading a comic, and we look at each other's expression, sort of like, "Oh, that doesn't look good. What, what's happening?" You know. So usually, yeah, usually sitting in bed. Nice. Uh, this might be slightly more than a lightning round question, but we'll, okay. we'll, we'll go for it anyway. Uh, uh, we'll, we'll, uh, any types of stories you haven't written yet that you'd like to? Hmm. Spider-Man stories. No, um, <laughs> I'm trying to think. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll call Dan. We'll see what I can do. Yeah, yeah. Get rid of <laughs> Dan, just take it in the knee there. You got to go, buddy. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Um, no, I've honestly, I think I've covered a lot of ground. I haven't done like hard sci-fi or anything, but I'm also, that's not really as much my bag, okay. I guess. I don't know. No, I, I feel relatively fulfilled genre-wise. Cool. Awesome. I know that's not an exciting answer. But... <laughs> no, it's good. Rachel? All right. Uh, what's your favorite comic book adaptation? Oh, God. <laughs> I don't know. Probably, probably, I know it's probably corny to say the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Um, <laughs> I really love uh, Winter Soldier. I think Captain America Winter Soldier is phenomenal. And it, it stands on its own as a great, compelling action thriller spy thing, but it's also moves the ball forward for the Marvel Universe. And it, it's just brilliant from start to finish. Great. Yeah, I definitely agree. That one's cool. my favorite. Um, I gotta wrap up, so uh, yeah, no. we can move into warp zone here. I apologize. Yeah, no, you're no, fine. You're good. Uh, favorite non-comic book movie? What? There are non-comic book movies? <laughs> <laughs> oh God! Uh, that would also change depending on the day of okay. the week. Uh, oh God! Now I feel like I have to say something really deep and meaningful. <laughs> um, no, you don't. It could be weekend at Bernie's. That's yeah. okay. <laughs> Raiders of the Lost Ark. Perfect. Love it. And then Matt, uh, you want to use the last so, one? Well, I'll just take the last one here. Uh, so, Jim, uh, you want to you want to you want to drop some plugs? We'll wrap it up here. Sure. Um, if people want to find out about more of my work, uh, I've got a blog. It's at jimzub.com, J-I-M-Z-U-B.com, and there's like 40 articles about how to write and make <laughs> comics and the business of comics. My Twitter is also at jimzub, and uh, I write. Uh, superhero stuff for marvel i'm writing the official dungeons and dragons comic and uh creator own books and image and lots more exciting stuff to come later this year awesome yeah what what does he not do it's true i d- sleep that's what i do <laughs> awesome awesome yeah and i want to say thanks too i mean this has been great and uh, really look forward to all the stuff you're you're putting out in the future awesome thank yeah. you take care of yourself yeah absolutely yeah. And hopefully we can uh, talk to you again soon. So thanks for joining the show and uh, look forward to hearing from you and seeing what you got in the future. My pleasure. Awesome. Take care now. Yep. Thanks. And that was Jim Zub, the stud, the man, the myth, the legend. Uh, I don't know about you guys, but I thought that was pretty, just pretty, pretty fabulous. Yeah, no, that was a great interview. I, uh, I felt bad because like, oh, God. I was just going to say, he seems like quite the, quite the stand up guy. Yeah. Yeah, He was a very nice guy. (laughs) It was I like I felt bad because we uh, we kind of kept him a little longer than we planned, but he was giving such good and in depth answers that I was like, well, I'm not I'm not gonna I'm not gonna stop him. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, no, he was great, and I it, it's funny because I mean he's he's a really nice guy, and he he goes really in depth on uh, on a lot of things that we talk about, and it was like ninety percent of like whether it was comics that he would talk about or things that he would talk about were 
things that we've talked about on the show. And then there was that little 10% where he's he's singing the praises of Dan Slott. And I'm just like in my mind picturing Matt's face. He's like, oh, no, Dan Slott love. I'm so conflicted. I, I, it's, it's a hard knock life for me. <laughs> <laughs> I still I've enjoyed what I've read of Dan Slott's Spider-Man, but I know you're you're very strongly opinionated of it. I, I, I maybe too strongly. I don't know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, well, I mean, we've all we've all been kind of diving deep into the Zub pool for the last uh, couple weeks. So I, I think, you know, maybe we'll all just kind of talk for a couple minutes about each Zub book that we read and then uh, then send it off. So I know, Rachel, you've been reading Wayward. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Um. Well, I, I like his description of it where it's just Buffy in japan mm-hmm. and because what's... yeah it, it is um this girl irish redheaded girl uh moves to japan with her mom mm-hmm. and kind of discovers that she has some superpowers and then runs into other kids with other superpowers yeah and then a whole big mess just kind of unfolds and what's what's been sort of most appealing or most gripping about it for you i mainly just the story it's actually a pretty interesting story and the way he said that it it is a mythical story it's basically about weaving fate that's her power she can see the threads of fate and she can weave them differently to change the outcome of things Mm -hmm. and yeah it's it's done very well that's interesting i mean that's a pretty unique thing i haven't really uh seen too much of that before yeah, I, I was kind of shocked reading it because at first it just seems like, oh, this girl moved to Japan and she's just trying to get on in life. And then it just kind of, bam, here's here's all these monsters. <laughs> 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 and it, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. Well, awesome. Um, I've been reading. Yeah. Uh, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, you're good. I was just going to say I've been reading uh, Skull Kickers and it's a whole lot of fun. I mean, it's it's like the it feels like you're reading the best Dungeons and Dragons game you've ever played. It's, you know, it's, it's like role playing at its best. It's super, you know, like just Tolkienian fun. And for the first volume, the two main characters don't even have names. They're just the bald guy and the short guy. Um, and it's, (laughs) it's just like, it's really playful. You know, it's, it's playing a fun Dungeons and Dragons game with your friends and just enjoying the sort of hilarity and the adventure and the, the, I don't know, just all the aspects of it. And it really has fun with itself. Um, and so I've I've been loving that book, and I think for anybody who, even for people who don't like fantasy, because I'm not the biggest like, I'm not the biggest D and D guy or the biggest you know like uh, you know Tolkienian whatever that type of fantasy stuff. Like it's not usually kind of my jam, um, but Skull Kickers is a blast to read, and it's it is a page turner. Like you just you read through it without even realizing it. Yeah. So I've I've loved that book. No, I also I thought Skull Kickers was a lot of fun. I I I only got a handful of issues through, but. Uh... It's definitely now on my reading list. But no, so I've been, I, I, uh, you know, I'll take the other, the big, the Glitter Bomb. Um, mm-hmm. And I particularly liked Glitter Bomb. I, I, I really like that we got a, a chance to touch uh, on the art because the art is really good. I mean, it is. Yeah. Fa- yeah. Absolutely fantastic. Dude's 22 and years old. Holy crap. It's, it's crazy. And I don't know. He, uh, it, 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 for me, anyone who can draw characters like he does and anyone and then on top of that do body horror yeah. and just real like gross weird tentacle bug creature stuff oh i love it it's so cool uh and then you know the only thing other thing i was touch on is the is the question I asked jim which was uh 
you know, so the comment I had for him was, uh, it does not explain what's going on uh, in sort in a in the fantastic side of the story, which is just awesome. So for that, for something that's it's not trying to cater to a creature, I think it's just really cool. Yeah, yeah, it's not a how do we kill it story. It's a what is going on and how do we deal with this type story. Yeah. Yep. No, absolutely. Um, yeah, and I think I'm I'm really excited, like especially kind of like we were as we were highlighting the the sort of image comics that he's done. Um, I'm really excited to see just you know what sort of the future holds for his creator owned projects because I feel like you know kind of like we were talking about he keeps sort of taking these left turns from where everyone thinks that he's going, and so um, you know I, I'm excited to see where you know where his road takes him because obviously he's had two very long running image books um and he's you know obviously had this new sort of like smash hit that's gonna continue on once a year um but just just in general like i'm i'm really excited to see what else he does um and if anyone loves samurai jack his samurai jack comics are fantastic um and at a, like at a time when we didn't think samurai jack would ever come back uh those were you know, and, and he worked closely with Gendy Tartakovsky and um, I can't remember the artist's name, but he was one of the lead artists on the actual TV series. And so it was very much, you know, sort of steeped in the continuity of the show um, and, and captured that feeling really well, too. So, yeah, I'm excited to see what he does in the future. And, uh, you know, hopefully we can yeah. get him on again sometime after, you know, Glitter Bomb Volume 2 comes out and all that stuff and sort of catch up. Because I would also like yep. to kind of dig into you know, the process of like working on a, a sort of thing like Samurai Jack where it's established, but it's also, you know, it's different than like the Marvel DC stuff mm-hmm. um, and a lot of other things that we didn't get to ask. But anyway, it's a good episode. He gave us a, a nice long interview. So, you know, no need in, in us rambling on for too long. But uh, where can where can the listeners find us? Uh, same place as always. Facebook and Instagram at Savage Land Podcast. Twitter at Savage Land Pod. Uh, you can you can uh, hop on over to iTunes there and and uh, 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 leave us a review. In fact, we just got a new review. I'm going to pull it up here. Yes, we did. Uh, I was just hey, I, I I was going to I think maybe my favorite review we've gotten so far. It's amazing. It's, it's a pretty good probably review. Probably the best. Uh, so to uh, from Kintical, uh titled "Close Call." Uh, five stars. Thank you very much for that. And uh, I accidentally walked, I accidentally walked out into traffic once. Savage Land sprouted legs and arms from my phone, stopping the truck from hitting me. Saved my goddamn life. <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> you're, you're fucking you're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> um, if any, if anyone else has any life changing or life saving stories about our podcast, feel free to to leave us a review <laughs> on iTunes. Um, but yeah, we, we do appreciate those reviews. It's, it had been kind of a while since we had gotten a new one. Um, and we've had a couple just in the last couple of weeks that have been great. Uh, so if you could do us a favor, hop on iTunes, uh, click those five stars and then also click the writer review option. Uh, so that you can kind of let us know why you like the show and, and we'll give you a little shout out if you know, whatever. Um, but yeah, or if, or if you don't like the show, let us know why preferably it'd be a little more constructive than I don't like Jason's voice, but you know, whatever. <laughs> whatever, whatever, whatever suits your prerogative. Yeah, and uh, uh, I'm just gonna throw this out there to everybody. So uh, next week is our our 100th episode. Yes, spectacular, it is. extraordinaire, um, extravaganza, ex- uh, all of the above. 
thousand. But in in that vein, I I think we're still trying to formulate uh, our what 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 our what our our ultimate plan is. But I want to also reach out to listeners and say, uh, you know, a podcast isn't a podcast without without uh, you, you can't do a podcast in a vacuum. So if anyone out there wants to throw some stuff out, some ideas, suggestions, things to talk about, whatever. Yeah. Uh, throw it at us. I mean, you know, yeah. we're, 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 we're as much a part of, uh, 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 I don't know what I was trying to go with, with there. Something, me- <laughs> <laughs> something meaningful. Yeah. I'm sure. It would have been, it was really deep. No, I mean, we, me. yeah, we, we love hearing from people. And I, I also really quick want to say thank you to all of the people who, uh, a few weeks ago I, I said, Hey, everybody listening to this right now, just send us an email that says, hi, um and we we got quite a few emails so i'm i'm actually very thankful for that thank you to everybody who who did that um you know i just wanted to kind of get a gauge for for the people who were listening and especially like you know not like listening further than like the first five minutes or whatever because we do want to keep the show fresh and entertaining and uh obviously engaging um which is one reason why we decided to start bringing on guests uh but yeah next week being our 100th episode uh we want to do you know do some some fun stuff and and have a lot of uh have a lot of good times um so if you're a new listener and and you want to hear us talk about something or if you just have feedback for us uh you can reach us on the social media like we already said or you can send us a an email to letters at savagelandpodcast.com um and we will and uh, if you're if you're if you're one of those crazy fiends that like has gone for for god knows why has gone back through every single old episode and you <laughs> and you and you've got some uh You've got some favorite inside jokes. Uh, throw them at us. I, yeah. I, I, I'd like to know what's what sticks and what doesn't. So then, if I start getting all amped up about the whole Humbotron again, I can be like, "Wait a minute, no, that's actually really stupid. Nobody likes that, so shut up." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and there's there's a lot of things that. So on our hundredth episode, we will spend a good amount of time talking about some things that we're going to be doing in the hundredth episode on because I feel like that's sort of our. I, I like. I guess I'll use a comic book term uh jumping on point you know that's kind of i feel like our 100th episode is going to be sort of a a new beginning for a a fresh look feel phase all that stuff of our podcast um we obviously have our new album artwork which i know some people are seeing and some people aren't so i'm still trying to figure out why in certain cases our album artwork hasn't updated um but that'll be i guess an ongoing thing uh but Yeah. yeah so feel free to feel free to send your stuff in and and uh you know, I don't know where I was going, yep. but yeah, that's yep. all. Yep. I think we can send it off here. Yep. yep, we'll send it off with whatever music we have in the thing. It's dope. It's dope.